Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On this second part of our current series on Matthew 3 and 4, entitled The King Goes Public, Dr. John Newfeld will teach us today what all people need to know about preparing for the kingdom. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 3 to 10, with Dr. John Newfeld. I've been thinking about the word preparation. There are, as we all know, so many things in life that we would not do without an adequate degree of preparation. What bride would appear at her wedding without first making a huge decision regarding the appropriate dress, the flowers, the decorations, the invitation list, on and on it goes. And then, of course, this is what I think. The reason why weddings are never in the morning is because on the day of the wedding, it takes early morning to at least mid-afternoon just to get the bride ready. Preparation. Think of the athlete getting ready for his Olympic event. Think of the scholar getting prepared for her Ph.D. oral defense. Think of the politician defending a new government policy to the public in front of the cameras. No one walks into any one of these events just hoping for the best and winging it. Often these big events require far more preparation than the actual event itself. And so in those days, as Matthew puts it, in those days just before the Messiah, in the days just before the great king was to step out into the public stage, preparations had to be made. But in this case, it is the everyday people who must prepare themselves. See, on this side of history, as we await the second coming of Christ, I'm amazed at how much energy Christians spend in defending their view of eschatology or the doctrine of last things. And by the way, I'm not denigrating a detailed study of the end times, but I am concerned that we forget the passages of Scripture like Matthew 25, in which Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. The point of Christ's parable is, be prepared, for you don't know the day or the hour of our Lord's return. Or Titus 2, we are told that, in the light of the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled and upright lives. Be prepared. You don't know the hour of the Lord's coming. Be concerned with preparation. A similar kind of situation existed when John the Baptist began to preach. None of the gospel writers tell us exactly what transpired to make John as popular as he was, but he created such a stir that everyone from Jerusalem to all Judea to all the countryside were making a pilgrimage to the Judean wilderness to hear him preach. Matthew tells us that this was God's timing. Matthew 3.3 says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, Matthew's quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. The immediate Old Testament context for that quotation, well, it's fascinating. If you have ever read through the book of Isaiah, you will notice that in the earlier chapters, Isaiah predicts both the Assyrian invasion of Israel and also the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. The day of judgment, says Isaiah, is coming for Israel. Isaiah says that the days are coming when everything of value in Jerusalem will be carried off to Babylon. And then as Isaiah describes this dark scenario, and we should be aware how the judgment he predicts fills his hearers with horror. All of a sudden, as if light shines in a dark place, the book of Isaiah becomes overwhelmingly beautiful. Chapter 40 begins with the words, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Isaiah foretells a day when the perpetual warfare and judgment against the people of God will end. And when will that be? Isaiah answers, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
Now, please notice several things. Matthew, who quotes this passage, tells us that John the Baptist is that voice who announces that this new, this wonderful time that has been prophesied by Isaiah has now arrived. John is the long-anticipated voice crying in the wilderness. I do know that all manner of Bible scholars will protest. They will say that the passage in Isaiah has nothing to do with John the Baptist. They say that Matthew had it all wrong, but I think they're wrong, and Matthew did get it right. In fact, many ancient rabbis put the words of Isaiah together with the words of Malachi 3 verse 1, which says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then Malachi 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so there developed at the time of John this expectation that God would send either Elijah himself or a prophet like him to pave the way for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. When he comes, the Bible says, his voice will first be heard crying out in the desert. Now, there's one more thing to be added about the Isaiah prophecy. Notice closely that the message of the Elijah-like prophet will be this, prepare the way of the Lord and not prepare the way of the Messiah. Now, why do I mention this? In Hebrew, the word Lord is the word Yahweh, which, as you know, is the name for God. Prepare the way for God himself. I only mention this so that we won't miss it. The arrival of Jesus as the great king is the arrival of God himself. It's too early in the New Testament to give a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity, but by the time we get to the baptism of Jesus, the Trinitarian overtones are becoming deafening. This is no mere human figure on the stage, and this is no mere king we are expecting. We are expecting God himself to step into the human story, and when he does, the kingdom of heaven will be here. So what have we learned up to this point? We should have learned that the coming of the Lord demands preparation. Just like no bride would ever approach her wedding wearing jeans, a t-shirt, runners, and her hair needing a wash, so no one who lives expectantly waiting for the second coming of Christ would ever wait on him without praying the words of Psalm 139, 23-24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me to the way everlasting. For believers, repentance is joy. Keeping short accounts with God, that's a pleasure. Not letting our sins fester to the point of inciting rebellion, that's a privilege. Closing out each day by praying with Jesus, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is to be the pattern of our lives. We have been taught to always live in the light of expectation. We don't know the day or the hour of our king's return. John is bringing that realization to bear as all Israel awaits her Messiah. But as we will see, John's message of being prepared in the light of the coming of the king comes at a very interesting place with a very interesting picture. Matthew 3, 4-6 reads, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Matthew mentions these fascinating elements about John. We've been talking about his message, but now we're going to learn about his clothing and his diet and then of his baptism. Let's start with his clothing. Sometime after John, Jesus would speak about John in this way. In Matthew 11, verse 8, it records Jesus as saying these words, What did you go out to the desert, to the wilderness to see? 
A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. By mentioning this, Jesus makes a distinction between clothing of the children of earthly nobility and the harsh clothing of prophets. Prophets were rough, often difficult to get along with, and they were hardy. Theirs was uh, not a life of comfort. John's food and clothing signified poverty and austerity. By wearing what he was wearing and eating what he was eating, he was saying, if you're going to get ready for the kingdom of heaven, this is not the time to invest in the kingdom of this earth. This is the time to think of the end of the earth and the beginning of heaven. And everything about John gave the impression that he believed what he was talking about. The second thing you would have noticed about John is what we today might call his altar call. When he preached repentance, John was looking for an instant response. He didn't want a warm handshake and a comment that he had preached a great sermon. He wanted you to come forward and confess your sins. And then you would get into a long lineup of miserable sinners like yourself. And you'd wait on the banks of the Jordan as he would baptize one sinner after another. And where does he get this idea of water baptism? We really don't read about baptism in the Old Testament, and yet here we see it suddenly mentioned, and it's almost like everyone knows exactly what he's talking about. As they get into line, they understand what is required of them. Well, first notice that while the Old Testament doesn't use the term baptism, uh, Leviticus 15 verse 5 speaks of people who have become unclean in some way, and then mandates that they should be required to wash their clothes and bathe themselves in water. So the bathing in water was a symbol of ritual cleansing. There are all sorts of other Old Testament texts that also speak of this kind of ritualistic immersion in water as a symbol of cleansing. But it is only ritualistic cleansing. So when John baptized, he was asking individuals to act out, if you will, a genuine repentance, a genuine, not ritualistic cleansing, but an inner cleansing. We have more to say about this essential preparation for the kingdom when we come back after the break. But for now, notice that John wants it played out, that one's repentance was not a privatized matter, but was to be publicly demonstrated, and that would lead to the coming of the kingdom of heaven. In this introduction, we've seen the significance of John the Baptist's ministry to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah, a fulfillment of what was prophesied in the book of Isaiah. This was all part of God's perfect plan to usher in the kingdom of heaven. After the break, Dr. Neufeld sheds more light on what preparing for the kingdom requires and that it wasn't a message accepted by all. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be celebrating is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary Caribbean cruise. From February 3rd to the 10th, we guarantee a week of laughter, fellowship, spiritual refreshment, music, and so much more upon one of Royal Caribbean's newest incredible ships, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it a time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a time to simply kick back? Enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean and allow your heart and soul to be ministered to. Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019, for a vacation of a lifetime. Laugh again, truth bringing laughter to life. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. 
we know that at the time of Jesus, there was a widespread practice in some Jewish communities that included a regular ritualistic baptism, all related to ceremonial purity, and it was practiced by some as a regular feature of their religious practice. If you go to Israel today, you'll see even in Jerusalem some ancient holes or pits hacked into stone that were set aside for just such a practice. They are ancient Jewish baptismals. But don't think of them as you would in a Christian church, because in the Jewish world, it was common to be frequently baptized or frequently cleansed. But John does not use baptism as a symbol of ritual purity. He rather speaks of a baptism of repentance. Until John came along, no one had ever demanded that Israel should undergo a baptism of repentance. Alfred Adosheim, in his landmark book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, points out that there was a kind of baptism of repentance that was practiced in ancient Israel, but it was only in relation to Gentiles. If a Gentile wished to convert to Judaism, he would have to submit to circumcision, then to be baptized, to wash away the moral defilement of his Gentile life, and then he was prepared to participate in sacrifice. So baptism did have a sense of washing away sins, but only those sins that came from not being of the chosen people of God. It was a symbol of conversion. But what John did is unique. He was baptizing Jews as if to say, you're just as unclean as the Gentiles. How will you ever be prepared when the kingdom of heaven and the great king arrives? You need to repent and repent they did. I can almost imagine the long line of people having been seized with grief and emotion for their sins, being baptized just like unclean Gentiles, and then returning home with joy and telling their neighbors and relatives and friends about their experience. The effects of this was snowballing. John's meetings were getting larger and larger. Word was getting out, and people were going to the meetings prepared to be baptized just the way their friends and family members had. But let's read further in our Bible passage. Matthew 3, 7 to 10 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, I know that in our day, the Pharisees and Sadducees have received a pretty bad rap, and rightly so. So we're not surprised to see them being spoken of in the way that John does. You bunch of snakes, he says to them. They must have all arrived at one time. There's a delegation of them. And as they arrived, it must have created quite the scene. But let's remember that in their day, they were the leaders of Israel. So as news about the size and impact of John's meetings are growing, it's not surprising to see these two groups showing up. The Sadducees were a part of the Jewish aristocracy. The high priest in Israel was always a Sadducee. They were almost all quite wealthy, and they had made political arrangement with the Romans who had entrenched their power. The Jewish historian Josephus said that they were unfriendly to the people. They believed in their elevated social status, snooty, we might say, convinced of their own importance. So they held up common people in contempt. They also denied that there was a resurrection from the dead. And so, to the most part, they had put their hope in this world. And when it came to this world, well, they were doing quite well. Thank you very much. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were different. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. 
And they could actually be divided into three groups or three schools of thought. One group were the followers of Rabbi Shammai, and they were the very conservative group. And another group, the followers of Rabbi Hillel, were quite liberal. And a third group were the followers of Rabbi Gamaliel. Some of you will know that Paul himself studied under him. Most of us know the Pharisees as a group of teachers of the law who added their own traditions on top of what the Bible actually said and taught their traditions as having equal weight to the Bible. So these men thought that they had the authority of God on their side. Now, both of these two groups, both arrogant in their own ways, neither believing they needed what John was offering, had members within their rank who formed the Jewish ruling council in Israel called the Sanhedrin. They were universally recognized as authority in Israel, given the power to interpret and apply the Mosaic law. So when these men showed up where John was conducting his meetings, it created quite a stir. These men had come to check out what all the fuss was about and would make a ruling as to whether John was a legitimate prophet and preacher or not. And we all know that the fix was in. They were coming to gather evidence against John. But John sees them coming, and he's not intimidated. He calls out, you snakes, you brood of vipers, who warned you about the judgment that is to coming, and it will fall on you. And then he says two things, which must have infuriated them. The first was theological. Being a Jew, he says, doesn't make you right with God. What makes you right with God is turning from your sins. And then secondly, he speaks prophetically. The axe, he says, is laid to the root of the trees. Contrast these two images. On the one hand, the vipers have shown up. Vipers were well-known killers. When they struck, well, you died. But, says John, you have the situation wrong. You're actually like unfruitful trees, barren trees that produce nothing good, and an axe is coming to chop you down and burn you in the fire. Now, we have noticed that the coming of our Lord demands preparation. We also notice that the coming of the Lord demands humility. The thing that overwhelms me about John's message is that genuine repentance definitely levels the playing field. If a Sadducee can't get in a long line of sinners and stand beside a tax collector or a prostitute awaiting his turn to be baptized into repentance, then he has absolutely no hope. He is unprepared. See, near the end of his own ministry, Jesus gives an explanation of what happened during the time of John's ministry. Matthew 21, verse 32, Jesus is in a dispute with the chief priests and the elders of Israel, and here's what he says. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. See, there's a great danger that attends anyone who achieves status and power. Oh, what a danger. I think of Napoleon Bonaparte, who commended a lot of positive ideals to the common man, including regularly attending worship. And then he hastened to add, but I am no ordinary man. C.S. Lewis said, the descent to hell is easy, and those who begin by worshiping power soon worship evil. And that's all of our temptation. It's hard to stand in the sinner's line. It's hard to be a well-educated professional standing next to a drug addict in the long line that awaited John's baptism. You want to protest and say, really? There should be two lines. I ought to not stand with the rest of these. And John the Baptist speaks out. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, or whether you're a Sadducee or a prostitute, 
Or whether you have the best education in the world or you barely made it through grade 10 and are hardly literate, there is but one line that will properly prepare you when the king of the ages goes public. Get in line, confess your sins, and await your baptism. Preparation, getting ready. Brides, politicians, scholars, and preachers know it is required of them. But when the king arrives, we must be prepared. It requires humility and faith. It definitely requires that our ego take a pounding. But you just will never welcome the king of the ages until you stand in the sinner's line. I can only imagine what the Pharisees and the Sadducees said when they got home. They were insulted. And I can only imagine what the prostitutes said when they get home. They had been set free. How about you? Insulted or set free? Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, O God, take away all this fierce and foolish pride and bring me again in humility before the King of the ages so that I might welcome his presence. In his name I pray, amen. John, what a great and inspiring message today. And as you're talking, I was thinking about how expectant am I? Am I expecting God to come? And if I'm expecting God to come, am I excited about it? What do you think? I think every single believer should be living in the light of expectation. We should always be prepared that Christ is coming very soon now. And I think we need to build that. We need to encourage people to think about that. So I think the expectancy of Christ's second coming ought to mark the way in which we live our lives. How do you see that being lived out? I mean, we all talk about, you know, expecting Christ to come, the second coming and all those types. How should that affect how we live today? Yeah, I know the Bible talks a lot about how that should uh, affect we live. We live pure and undefiled lives. I remember as a child, I would, you hear uh, people preaching, what would happen if Christ were to appear now? Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be prepared? Is what you're doing would be something that would be honorable when Christ comes back? See, these are great questions. And, and I think that even though that I may remember them from my childhood, I don't hear them spoken of so much anymore. Well, it's been a great word, John, and we should be expecting God's second coming. But what about all the false testimony out there about his coming? I think that's one of the reasons why we've stopped talking about the coming of Christ. We've had uh, so many individuals give a very, very poor interpretation of Scripture, even predicting the second coming of the Lord. And it's given us a jaded feeling about the whole topic. We need to fix that. Thanks, John, for sharing with us again today. And we're looking forward to your continued study in the book of Matthew in the days ahead, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.